Welcome to the Heart Rate Variability Podcast. Each week we talk about heart rate variability and how it can be used to improve your overall health and wellness. Please consider the information in this podcast for your informational use and not medical advice. Please see your medical provider to apply any of the strategies outlined in this episode. Heart Rate Variability Podcast is a production of Optimal LLC and Optimal HRV. Check us out at OptimalHRV.com. Please enjoy the show. Welcome, friends, to the Heart Rate Variability Podcast. I am Matt, back into our series with Dave and Ina on the heartbeat of business. Um, so we have now hit chapter six. We're working our way through the book, um, Job Resources and Leadership. And to me, well, what I really would like to uh, expand on with, with this uh, episode with Ina and Dave is really just looking at how we help regulate the stress response of each other. So there's so much research out there on the power of social networks. Um, you know, we use in psychology the, the concept of co-regulation, um, basically to describe how if I'm with somebody I trust, um, that, you know, I have this sense of safety and trust, and that really we know helps to regulate the stress response. So clinically, if I'm working with somebody with uh, a, a history of trauma, we know that that leads to a dysregulated stress response for a lot of people, especially those that might get the diagnosis of uh, PTSD. So I really want to use and start to build trust. And actually, if you look at the best practices in trauma care, we spend a lot of time building that trust, building that safety before we go into the trauma work itself. It's it's definitely got to be there, definitely got to be established up front in order to do successful work with individuals. So I would love to talk about this from kind of the business perspective. Uh, I, I know clinically we do this, you know, but, but how leaders can really help uh, to manage that or co-regulate that stress response, especially in this time where, um, I think the level of stress, burnout, being just generally overwhelmed with life um, is at an all-time high. So, so Ina, I know you, you do this work clinically as well. Uh, you also work with a lot of high performers uh, who maybe pull themselves up by their bootstrap folks, but also experience a lot of stress too. And so I wonder, you know, with, with your work in heart rate variability, thinking of being like the, the other, Dave and I, really obsessed with this idea of measuring the stress response, helping to build resiliency. When you think about the leader's role, when we talk about group health, team health, organizational health, I, I just would love to get your some, some initial thoughts um, on this topic. Um, absolutely. Um, I think one thing that not is not always top of mind and I think is incredibly important when it comes to thinking about leadership is how important it is for the team when the leader is well regulated because mm -hmm. you know if a leader is dysregulated uh, it doesn't matter how cohesive well it, it might but it doesn't matter as much uh, how cohesive the team is and how smart people are and how you know well trained and educated uh, if the if the leader is dysregulated that Team dynamic dynamics seem to fall uh, seem to fall apart. Obviously, heart durability is an incredibly great indicator of yeah. self regulation, um, and 
it's a good clue uh, for the leader. Uh, you know, how am I doing today? Uh, what do I need to watch out for? You know, if uh, their heart variability is lower than typical that morning, maybe it's a signal for, you know, if I'm interacting with my team members, I just need to kind of hold this in the back of my mind. You know, I might be a little more reactive. Um, I might have a little less patience. I might have a little less empathy. And that's another piece that people don't always think about. You know, when we think about uh, self-regulation, we tend to think reactivity or, you know, keeping our uh, emotions regulated, et cetera. But we don't uh, think about compassion and empathy. Um, and a dysregulated nervous system is going to have a much harder time experiencing empathy and particularly compassion, uh, which is incredibly important uh, in, a, in a team and a work environment from a leader. Um, and if the leader is not very well dis uh, regulated, it's uh, compassion is kind of falls to the background, right? It becomes not the first thing that the nervous system is going to put its resources towards. Um, and it would require some conscious uh, attention and some conscious awareness uh, that you know, today may be the day uh, where this may be a little bit harder. I need to pay attention to it. Yeah, I think it's such a great point. We also talk in the chapter about that emotional symmetry. And, you know, while as teammates, our emotional state definitely impacts the our, our other teammates. I, you know, there's, there's no really escaping that that in the research. And, and then there's that that role of leader. And I don't I think this kind of scares some people. I think, you know, in my field where we're all revolutionaries, we, we kind of don't want to acknowledge leadership is important until you don't have a good one. Um, but but the, the importance of a leader, a, a coach, a manager, uh, there, there's just that. Uh, one of my favorite studies on this is where people's eyes are during a meeting. And I believe it's around 70% of the time they're looking at the leader or manager, even if the leader and manager is not the one speaking, um, because we're looking what, what we interpret this as we're looking to the leader of how we should respond. And so there is like this formal power in leadership. And then there is informal power in leadership, which I, I, I think we don't acknowledge enough. Dave, I'm going to come to you. You're, you're a leader in multiple roles, uh, you know. Uh, with your clinics, uh, as a professor, uh, I, I hear some students might be dysregulated right now. And obviously, there's stress inherent to being a student, uh, achieving, uh, you know, those perfectionists out there, like some of us on this uh, Zoom. Uh, but I just kind of want to see how, how you look at this idea of leadership, um, and especially how it relates to uh, social emotional health. Yeah. Um, so, you know, as you guys were talking there, you know, it made me think uh, it's you can see this so clearly in a classroom setting, for example, or in a, um, you know, or in a speaker talking to an audience. Um, what what is that person bringing to that class, uh, you know, to that to that audience? that they're speaking to and how is this in turn impacting everybody else in the room? So um, I'm sure that you've all seen speeches, uh, you know, or, um, you know, been to a conference where everybody is falling asleep in the audience. Right. And, uh, and we've all been to the conference where 
where the speaker is all full of energy and everybody's paying attention. Everybody's happy. Everybody's feeling good, having a great time. And that is all a result of the speaker's energy or the teacher's energy. And, um, and obviously a leader role is the, is the exact same thing there. Um, but you know, I can, I can see that very clearly. I know that if my class, for example, is starting to feel that energy drain, feel that energy drop, you know, um, that I need to pick up my energy, that I need to reflect that happy, positive, uh, you know, I, I really lead the way with that. Um, and, uh, and you can see that, of course, when you're, uh, when, when you're talking at a conference or whatever it may be as well. Um, but I, but what I, what we want to do, I, you know, as well is when people are feeling overwhelmed, when I'm seeing, uh, when I'm seeing that people, that this is way too much, uh, you know, mm-hmm. that I can bind with, uh, that I can bond with them and I can relate to them and I can connect and, um, and, and actually, I, uh, you know, you'd be very proud. I, uh, I had a student and, uh, who was very, very overwhelmed and, uh, and we were able to, you know, connect on a more personal level and talk about, you know, why this was, uh, why we could do something, um, you know, more impactful, how, how we could view the subject a little bit differently, how they could help regulate their nervous system. Um, and again, bringing that trust, uh, bringing that trust, showing them that I'm a real person, showing them that actual human connection, um, you know, and, uh, and you have a student who comes away, uh, you know, with a, with a very high B on his test rather than, uh, rather than failing due to his, uh, you know, due to his test anxiety. But, um, but, you know, this is just one example of that. Okay. You know what? I, I took it down and I regulated, uh, you know, I showed the student how he could regulate. I showed, um, and I showed that even though I may be the leader, I'm a real person, I'm a trusting person, um, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, so I, all right. There's a, there, there's a lot of ways to impact. And then I, you know, you see that with coaches and players and, you know, whatever else it may be. Right. Uh, so. Yeah. And, and it leads us to that, that you beautifully set up kind of to transition into the idea of to, to me, trust and psychological safety go hand in hand. Uh, you know, and I know if, if you're not familiar with the, the, the work on psychological safety, really that, that I see it as a comfort level that I feel safe. Like I can take risks. So there's a social safety aspect to this. I know I'm not going to be asked to violate my values. So there's, you can bring moral safety in there, avoiding, you know, kind of moral injury, because I know we're all kind of have shared values along this, but, but I really feel like I, I can be me in some ways. Well, without, uh, getting, if I, if I act within the norms, hurt, uh, however that might be. So when I, when I think uh, about psychological safety and trust, the, the one word that pops into my head is oxytocin. Um, it is my favorite chemical in our body. Um, you know, I, I think it's been so much of my career, uh, whether I knew it or not, when I, you think about trust, when you think about safety, uh, this, this little chemical that gets released, often called the bonding chemical, um, that, that I know is so important in emotional, uh, regulation. And so, you, you know, Ina, let me go back, back to you is like, like this idea of trust and safety, because oftentimes I think when we talk about heart rate variability, it's sort of what's going on under your skin. And it's, it's pretty easy, even though I think in this podcast, we've done a good job avoiding it to just think about, okay, there's a, there's one system we're looking at, and that is what's going on underneath 
the person's skin. So I would I would love to get your your thoughts, both trust, safety. Uh, if you want to throw anything in you have about oxytocin in there as well, uh, I always like to nerd out about my favorite chemical. I am a big fan of oxytocin as well. And here's one thing that I didn't know about oxytocin until, well, fairly, um, you know, fairly recently as I was kind of diving into this a few years ago. Um, oxytocin is a stress hormone. Right. So, yeah. Right. I <laughs> did not know that. If you can explain that. that, I would love to get a great explanation. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, so this is... Uh, I'm not an expert on oxytocin. Well, we should get Sue Carter on the uh, podcast yeah. to talk about it because uh, she is. But, um, you know, if you think about uh, oxytocin, the fact that it's a stress hormone, it's, you know, we what it tells me is that we are designed to connect with other people at times of stress. You know, we have the this physiological foundation for uh, connection for seeking out other people to help us get through st stressful situations. It's evolutionarily, biologically uh, built into us. Uh, so let's use it, right? Yeah. Uh, and with the caveat that the trust and the safety have to be built initially in yeah. order for us to feel comfortable enough to reach out uh, to these other people. Uh, but then knowing that there, you know, there is somebody in our corner um, and with a little oxytocin, oxytocin thrown in, uh, at times of stress, um, we're going to be much more likely to reach out. Like, you know, this student uh, that you were just talking about, Dave, right? Um, you have a solid foundation uh, and trust. Uh, you, know, the, you know, the student knows that you are there for them. Um, and they reached out when they were completely overwhelmed and stressed out. And, in, you know, that that, that was uh, that oxytocin uh strength and connection. Um, and you came at it from the perspective of trust and safety and co-regulation. And the fact that you were regulated at the time of that interaction, uh, I imagine helped the student quite a lot um, in uh, getting into a more uh, regulated state and becoming successful. Um, um, so, you know, it's pretty amazing to me how all of this is so uh, so interconnected, we can start talking about one thing and we're gonna end up coming back to yeah. what we always talk about. Absolutely. And, and one of the things that, that I find fascinating about the, the oxytocin research that I've done over the years is like, really, uh, you know, while it's a stress chemical, which I, I think, again, uh, accounts for, you know, there, there's, there's some folks in the trauma world that say, fight, flight, freeze. And then there's another F word in there that I'm not going to say on the podcast because, uh, you know, and I, you may have heard my soapbox, not every stress response has to start with the word or the letter F. Uh, but basically it's a relational, right? It, it's reaching out to other people is really an inherent. And I almost think it probably comes slightly before the the, the fully sympathetic fight or flight response that that reaching out to somebody if I feel safe and trust like Dave probably your student uh might be ready just to run out of the room but uh you know isn't going to drop out of your class because you you help provide that that emotional uh regulation I, I love that idea of that connection between how oxytocin helps to you know if I think about the window of tolerance in that ventral vagal nerve really helps to open up that cognitive capacity 
bringing that executive functioning on board. So Dave, I just kind of, any any thoughts uh, to add to this uh, on uh, my good friend, oxytocin? Yeah, uh, well, first I, I love Ina's, um, the, the way that she wrapped it up there is, uh, is, is that it's a stress hormone and that means that we're supposed to connect in times of stress. That was, that was gold. That was awesome. I love that. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm a bit of a fiend, I suppose myself, uh, in that regard, because I, you know, I, I'm a professional hugger. That's what I do for a living. Um, I love that. <laughs> so, uh, so, you know, I, I get to share that with all the people that I interact with, you know, yeah. um, as a, as a chiropractor, that is what we're quite literally doing, right? I get to put my hands on people, um, and share that connection. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, uh, and, and a lot of adjustments do actually look like a, a variation of a hug in some way. Um, but you know, there, there is a large level of trust that obviously has to go into that. that. And then, and then we do have that very positive exchange as a result. Yeah. Um, and I have to say that I get so much energy from my patients and I give so much energy to my patients and, um, within that exchange. And we all leave so much happier and in this glowing state. Right. And I, and, and, and is oxytocin a part of that? I, I would venture to guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and even within, you know, when you're when you are doing something where obviously a touch or hug might not be the most appropriate thing, right? Like in a workplace, um, like student to teacher, uh, whatever it is, um, although that may not be uh, the most appropriate thing, we you can still exchange that just just from exchanging a really warm smile from a very warm conversation, we can still get that same rush of feeling. Um, so I think that that's, uh, I think that that's very important, um, you know, to, uh, to realize that there's, there's multiple ways uh, to, uh, to exchange these chemicals. Um, and actually, if I can share a quick story uh, that just happened yesterday, um, I, I have all these great examples now. Um, I, was, I was at Costco, uh, one of my favorite places to go. And, um, and there was this elderly lady whose car had broken down and uh, she asked if I could help jump her car for her. Um, and, uh, and I did, and she was very, very scared to get into her car to start it, um, because the cables were all hooked up and whatnot. And, um, and I told her that I would get in for her, you know, and start her car and I started her car up and she started crying and she was shaking and she was so just overwhelmed, um, you know, with, with this situation because she thought she was going to be stuck here and whatnot. And she reflexively hugged me and I hugged her back and, and I held her in a very tight hug for, you know, what would be an awkwardly long time for a stranger, (laughs) but, but you could feel her body just relax throughout Mm -hmm. that. And I, and she was so thankful, um, you know, that I, that I was able to help. And it was really cool cool because my son was with me too so he got to see all that um and uh and it was just so cool like how you could see that that exchange um you know helps a helps a person so much uh when, when physical touch is okay you know in, uh, in those situations yeah i love but, it and, and yeah. this might this is a little bit i i just want to recognize I'm, I'm pushing the envelope of the research here but i have just uh my my 
conclusion with this, and it's just my conclusion, is that, you know, I spend a lot of time, you know, as a, you know, mental health professional thinking about attachment theory. And we know that there's these different attachment styles that develop between the primary caregiver and the young child. And that can be avoidant where I, I get, as soon as I get close to somebody, it's probably not the woman that you hugged for a while, that, that I sort of run away. Like I had a lot of people drop out of programs altogether. I think I have a breakthrough. Um, it just didn't work for them. I, I you know, there's, you know, the anxious, uh, you know, where I, again, think I have a breakthrough. The, the client walks out and throws a chair through the window. Uh, there, there's just an overwhelming anxiety of getting close to somebody. I think I have a breakthrough for them. It was, I'm not going to say traumatic, but pretty close to that. And then we have like a disorganized uh, or an insecure attachment style where I think a lot of folks get diagnosed with personality disorders and other things in this category because it's a roller coaster of emotions. Where we want to be and where most people listening to this, about 60% from the last research I've seen are, is with a secure attachment. And while I'm not saying in any way, shape, or form a leader is a parental figure, I really see that we with we have these relationships. I, I call them secondary attachment figures. Teachers are great examples of this in education. But really, we can look at that same uh, piece, I think, from leadership perspective as do, do we see our leaders as a secure base? Um, in other words, can, can, I, can I take risks with the leaders? Can, can, I, can I express? Can I hold the leader accountable if I see the leader do something that might not be right? Can, can I express a new, maybe a little bit controversial within limits or innovative idea with folks? And there's where I think that oxytocin sort of lives for us. If, if my leader is a sense of security, safety, trust, it just allows me to bring a different person uh, to that work environment. I, I remember the first couple jobs I had, I, I had terrible leaders. Um, hopefully none of them are listening to this. Well, you kind of kind of hope they are. That they were they were absolutely terrible. And I, what I learned through that is a very like my in my early 20s, right out of school is you should trust these people. Uh, this is hard. And then when I finally, in my fourth job, got a leader that is still a really great friend and mentor of mine, um, it took me like a year to trust him because I've had that experience. So so I just think of that secure base idea, even if you want to throw all my other attachment language out, I, I think is such a key aspect uh, to this. Because if we have that at work, we probably like our work environment. Our teams are probably healthier. Because if you're scared of your leader or they're dysregulated, there's where that emotional symmetry, I think, just uh, takes over uh, the entire group. I think that's so true, Matt. And, you know, and while, you know, hopefully our bosses are not parental figures, although sometimes they probably do become that, um, I think there is a parallel here that's, that's really important. You know, if you look at uh, if you look at kids with the various kinds of insecure attachment mm -hmm. styles, you know, anxious, avoidant, disorganized, and you know, those those have some other names, but that's sort of the general idea. Um, they might look um, differently. You know, if you just if you just if paying attention to behavior, right? You know, a kid who is throwing tantrums versus a kid who just goes away, and plays by themselves, or a kid who runs away. Um, but physiologically, you know, all these types of insecure attachment are actually fairly similar 
and uh, and they all show a dysregulated nervous system. So a kid uh, with an in any kind of insecure attachment style um, has a uh, dysregulated uh, nervous system, and uh, that often does persist into adulthood. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it's possible to have different styles of attachment to different people, right? So I'm not saying that, you know, anybody who's ever had an insecure attachment to someone is doomed forever, not at all. Uh, but uh, these trends uh, do tend to carry over. Um, and if something about your boss reminds you about a caregiver who wasn't the nicest to you when you were a kid, guess what? That disorganized uh, uh, or dysregulated nervous system is going to pop right up. Yeah. Um, so the idea of developing a secure base is really important, um, you know, for the team and for the leader. It's important to keep in mind that they can play the role of a secure base. They shouldn't be playing the role of a parent. Uh, but the, I love the idea of the leader being a secure base, someone that can be uh, counted on for support, somebody who can be counted on to um uh, to help uh, someone can be counted on to give constructive criticism uh, and not jump down um, uh, their throats. And one of the things, Dave, I love about the secure base, like I said, I I think some of the attachment theory, yeah, nah. And again, like everything else, attachment styles change over time. I think the power differentiation doesn't mirror perfectly the parental child relationship, but there's some you know, characteristics there uh, enough that that may bring some of that out, you know, but but I love the idea of being able to like a secure base for a child allows the child developmentally to explore the world around them. And, and I think about especially so much of like the intellectual workplaces where creativity, innovation are so important. If you if you got to worry about your leader, you're probably not focused on, hey, how do we use HRV to change the world, right? Because you're so paranoid about, is the leader going to be in a good mood or a bad mood? And we're really trying again, we we may be forced into a anxious or avoidant or disorganized behavior because we're, we're trying to please somebody who's giving out those vibes as well. So, uh, so now, now you guys are getting uh, you two psychology people are getting <laughs> way too much, <laughs> way out of my realm. Um, but I, you, you are a parent of young children, though, so uh, yes. it's not that far away. <laughs> but um, but with that, uh, you know, I, uh, Dr. Bruce Lipton in his book, uh, "The Biology of Belief," uh, which is a which is a great book. Um, he he talks a little bit about uh, about a good foundation, right, and uh, and how this influences uh, you as well, and uh, and I love that, and um, and it is true. Like what uh, what he says in there is that a uh, is that a child who grows up with a very secure, loving relationship. Uh, with a great foundation with their parents is always going to feel more comfortable taking risks is always going to feel more comfortable going out into the world and exploring new ventures because they know that they have this to fall back on. Right. And, um, and it's, you know, look at that as no different, uh, you know, being a, being a leader of any kind is that, uh, is that if your, if your employees know that no matter what happens, you are going to be okay with it right you are going to support them in a positive way right like uh like Ian said like constructive constructive criticism right um 
that that uh, that just makes people so much more confident to to go out and and take a risk that they've obviously evaluated uh, to be to be worthwhile. Um, so yeah, I uh, I think that that's a a very important uh, piece of the puzzle to be looking at. Yep, it really goes back to the previous chapter to me for mindfulness biofeedback. You know, is I I really look at mindfulness one as a leader. It needs to be a practice that they do. But I, I like to look at it. It's one of those traits of leadership that, that I think all great leaders embody is like, like Dave, just like you said, how am I, uh, when things get stormy, if the leader gets dysregulated, bye-bye, right? It's not, you're, you're not going to have a good outcome. So that the leader has to have, you know, and working in healthcare, social service, like these highly burned out um, pieces, education is a great example. If the teacher gets dysregulated, whoo, look at that classroom. It is a mess. Like, so, so it just puts that extra emphasis. Um, I say like, why do you get paid more as a leader to keep that emotional regulation w- within the storm that, that hits every organization, uh, from time to time, if not on a daily basis. Um, uh, one of the things I'd like to do, and, and we're, we're recording this right at the, I think it'll be published towards the end, but, uh, Right around when March Madness is uh, about ready to take over my life, uh, at least for the next few uh, uh, weekends. Um, one of the things, David, I'll, I'll throw this one at, at you initially, and then I'd love to get Ina's uh, perspective as well, is, um, you know, we have these models for leadership. And sports, I think, gives us so many great analogies, but we get to watch leaders in real time you know, uh, impact and outcome. I, I think we give them too much credit sometimes and way too much pay for impacting the outcome. But, you know, we get to watch leaders in a way that it's a two-hour event. Um, it has a tangible outcome at the end of it. Um, and we get to watch them on camera for pretty much the entire time. And Dave, I know in my lifetime, I have seen the idea of a coach transform um, because almost you were expected as a coach to be emotionally dysregulated. And I, I'll just call out the, the model that stands out for me is Bobby Knight. And if you're too young to remember Bobby Knight, Bobby Knight literally threw a chair across the court during the basketball game, kept his job. Bobby Knight eventually got fired for attacking students at the university. Look it up, uh, you know, and he was my hero growing up. He was the role model. My father, unfortunately, based his model on that because success happened in there. And so, Dave, I kind of wonder, I know I know you're a little younger than I am but, and haven't been involved in sports. Just kind of like as you work with athletes, you work with maybe teams, like where, where do you see this sort of impacting this from? Used to be you think about the coach or the drill sergeant really on people, just, just, I'm going to get you to be motivated by yelling at you. And I just kind of love to see with your, uh, your involvement in sports over the years, kind of how you've seen that change and evolve. Yeah. Well, well, you hit it right on the head, uh, right? We all have that vision of, um, of the coach who just screams and yells to get people to do what they want. Um, and, uh, and, and we find, and that's uh, maybe maybe not the best, right? Uh, and I grew up doing um doing you know quote unquote rough sports uh, like hockey, where I uh, and I played at a played at a pretty high level where I where our coach would literally shoot pucks at us if we misbehaved in practice, you know. Uh, so, so a little little different. Um, 
but I, but yes, that's, that's one way to make your athletes do what you want or to follow the, or to follow the leader. Uh, but we see that it's, it's much more effective when you use things like positive reinforcement. Yeah. Um, so, so that's a, you know, that's a good strategy as well. Um, but Matt, I think uh, what I really wanted to say is, uh, you know, the the sport of mixed martial arts, um, and uh, that is such an interesting one because it evolved from this uh, this caveman, okay. where it was just two guys getting in a ring and just you know trying to do anything they could to survive, essentially. Mm-hmm. And you see the progression of the styles of fighters to where it went from just 100% physical to now it is so cerebral mm. where the plans are so well thought out where a strategy is is hey it's not just i'm going to go in there and just swing as hard as i can i am going to go in there and i know that this is my opponent's weakness and i know that and i know that this is my strength so i'm going to try to bait this person into doing this thing rather rather than just go crazy and see what happens. Um, and that's, you know, and and what do you have to do for that, right? You have to be a very emotionally regulated person, right? As does your coach, as does your whole team um, to to have these things happen the way that you want. Because if you're, if you're in there and your coach is screaming, right? And your coach is losing it, what happens to you? You lose it, right? We see that with, uh, with athletes of all kinds um, where, where games go really sour, right? Or the parents are fighting in the stands. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, by dysregulation. Yes, but um, but you know, to be able to maintain that as a high level performer, um, you know, and keep that clear game plan, especially when things are not going well, especially yeah. when there are large challenges or obstacles. Um, and of course, uh, you know, I like um, uh, Mike Tyson uh, was famous for saying, "Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face." Yeah. Uh, right. And uh, and and that and, and that's exactly it right in the uh in the most you know real sense of it uh these guys who are the mixed martial arts fighters are getting in there and they're literally getting swung at and punched at right this is a uh, the definition of fight or flight yeah <laughs> um and uh and we're having you know you have to keep that composure you have to keep that executive function you have to be able to regulate yourself um you know and and that is a uh, you know, that's huge. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, I, uh, well, and it's interesting that that sympathetic, you know, I think sports are such an interesting thing because you got you, you've got the sympathetic active, right? You've, you've got that fight or flight energy, right? You've got that sympathetic, your heart rate goes up as we know, heart rate variability during the, during physical exertion. So that, that balance almost requires a higher level of training in order to manage that. And then, you know, interesting in the basketball arena where we're seeing a lot more, you know, that, that there's interesting like activations in different parts of the brain where, you know, there, there's almost this automatic response of being in that moment and just like of the flow state, so to speak, uh, which isn't necessarily, I'm thinking, Oh, I need to dribble this way. I need to dribble that way. But I'm just like, I've gotten myself in that mind space uh, of, of being like sort of just in the flow of that moment. And usually uh, I've, I've experienced that a few times. Usually the shots go in, like, which is a lot of fun uh, uh, when you're playing basketball. You know, I'd love to kind of wrap up with, with your thoughts on this, because I know you work with those those high performing 
uh, groups as well. I want one that's really interesting to me right now is the military as well, because I, I really believe that on one hand, I, I still have it, which may be totally wrong because it's all from Hollywood, the drill sergeant, right? What basic training looks like. Nothing I really ever wanted to sign up for, even as a Bobby Knight fan. Like there, there's different levels of getting yelled at. Um, but 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 I also know that the military is highly focused on resiliency, uh, uh, PTSD, avoiding PTSD, uh, you know, that the health of our armed forces. And I just kind of, you know, you can take this in the athletic arena with those high performers you work with, the military, just kind of the how the coaches roll within that, that you may have uh, seen evolve over time as well. Yes. So with the military, uh, I mean, these guys get pushed to unimaginable uh, boundaries, right? You know, if uh, I had a chance to observe, you know, uh, Bud's training for the Navy SEALs, right? Which sounds nice and cuddly, but <laughs> it's not. <laughs> it's not. Uh, I mean, what these guys go through is yeah. just incredible. Um, and, you know, as you might imagine, very few, uh, very few make it. And those who do have a nervous system that can withstand that constant attack and not just from the drill surgeon, but from sleep deprivation, from heat, from, uh, you know, uh, carrying loads, <laughs> right? People, yeah, the little, little thing is people shooting it, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, you know, their nervous systems are, um, you know, kind of predisposed to being able to hand, handle that, which is not to say that they, uh, there isn't anything we could do to help them, but you absolutely can. And, you know, we, um, heart durability by feedback, you know, mindfulness is now becoming more a part of, um, uh, you know, of the work for these elite, uh, forces in order to support that incredible load on their nervous systems. Their nervous systems are incredibly, you know, talented to begin with, if we could mm -hmm. use that word, um, uh, but they could still use a lot of support. Um, and then I think with athletes, there is a much greater shift towards uh, the importance of, uh, well, being nice, for lack of a better word. Um, you know, my, you know, my, all my kids have been involved in sports in one way or another. You know, my daughter is a um, you know, pretty highly performing um, uh, rhythmic gymnast. Uh, and the difference that I see, you know, between different coaching styles is really incredible. So uh, my daughter has the best coach uh, who knows just how to push while still being nice and supportive and understanding. Um, and I've seen, uh, you know, girls uh, come off the carpet, you know, having maybe not done their best uh, and the coach kind of coming up, you know, grabbing by the arm, clearly yeah. like saying not nice things. And you can see that poor kid just like shrinking into themselves and, you know, absolutely in freeze mode, you know, and maybe fight or flight. Uh, but, you know, if you think about how is that child's nervous system going to respond when they have to go out to the carpets for the next routine versus a child, you know, whose coach uh, gave them supportive, uh, give them a hug, really, right. right? You know, just, you know, a big comforting uh, hug uh, instead of a few supportive words, you know, which one of these children is going to be um, more likely to do better um, on their uh, on their next routine. Uh, so just pure physiology, if you think about it, yes, you can scare somebody into doing what you want them to do. And some people end up doing well because their nervous systems are biologically predisposed to being able to withstand that. Right. But that's not helping. That is definitely not helping. Uh, you know, you you can use that 
biologically talented nervous system with extra, you know, by giving it extra support uh, and, you know, to really helping that athlete uh, blossom. Um, or you can undermine it, uh, undermine it uh, yeah. with, you know, horror stories about uh, um, some, some, some of the coaches out there. Yeah. Like, it's like, I know I didn't do great yelling at me. Probably not the best way. I, I And I'll bring this kind of back to business to kind of start to wrap us up here. But I love and I believe it was Jim Collins, though. I think I learned everything in business from Jim Collins because he's been such his books have been so powerful uh, for me and my development. But he talks, I believe it's him. Um, Jim, forgive me if I'm, I'm wrong here. But uh, he talks about the difference between movement and motivation. And as somebody who thinks a lot about like motivational interviewing, other aspects of motivation from a psychological perspective. I really think that's what we're talking about. I think the historic sort of idea of a leader, even in the business world was, and I had a, I had one of those terrible bosses tell me this, these words, if I don't yell around here, nothing gets done. And I'm like, boy, did I, did I sign that HR paperwork yet? Cause this is not, this, I really needed the job at the time or I would have walked right out at that moment. And if it was this job market, that would have been my first and last day. But but there's this concept of like the, that sort of mentality and it just doesn't work. You know, you can't show me any statistics that that style of leadership uh, leads to these this great result where, and I think you see that in basketball so much is that, you know, again, because it's so visual there is, you know, they're on basically right next to the court is now you've got somebody more in a supportive role. You know, this, this used to be, I think it's just coaching now, but a player centered coach um, versus one that just like to yell for their own voice, I guess. But, um, you know, it's really cool to see like this now shifting in the business world where, yeah, we do want, we're going to have those high peaks of performance, but most of the time we want to have that strong ventral vagal break. I would say all the time in the business world, we want that. Again, we want that energy. We want that motivation to come in intrinsically, but we're really looking at that uh, from that supportive perspective where we get the oxytocin, we can get the dopamine, serotonin, all that good stuff associated with motivation. So any final words here? I've, I've loved this discussion. All right. Well, as always, you can find show notes. Uh, you can download the Heartbeat of Business book for free at OptimalHRB.com. Uh, feel free to reach out to us at any time. We'd love to get your questions, interactions. Uh, thank you for joining us in this series. Uh, so next week, we will hit uh, chapter seven, uh, where we talk about stress. So not all stress is bad stress. So talk about how if positioned right, um, that stress can actually become a motivator uh, for high performance. So, Ina Dave, thank you so very much. I always love these discussions, and uh, we'll see everybody uh, next week.